Watch me, I'm going to be really, really classy. Uh-huh. So, the Board Game Geek Awards mm-hmm. are up for nominations, mm-hmm. including for podcasts. Yeah. And I think that if you enjoy board game podcasts, you should go and nominate the podcasts that you like. You can nominate up to 10, and any podcast that you can enjoy, you should nominate. Having said that, if you if you would like to nominate us, that's the classy bit over, right? Um, if you'd like to nominate us, you have two days left. And also, uh, we're not called the No Pun Included podcast anymore. You can't find that there. We're called Talk Cardboard. We decided to separate these two entities out by names, for better or for worse, because we believe in this podcast and how good it yeah, is. Yeah, we do. Right? Uh, and yeah, there's a lot of great podcasts out there. You should vote for all, all your favorite ones, because you can nominate 10. But if if amongst those 10... One of those happens to be us. That's also good. I don't know if anyone has time to listen to 10 podcasts. Like, not just to listen to 10 podcasts, have 10 favourite podcasts Mm. in board games. You'd have to listen to quite a lot. Are you saying they might as well throw us in? Well, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Wouldn't hurt. Less classy than me. Welcome to Talk Cardboard, a podcast about board games and everything adjacent, with your no-pun pair, Elaine and Efka. On today's show, we'll be talking about Vicindas Volk, Whale Riders and Carnegie, as well as comments from Paul's interview. But first, let's see what you had to say about the games we spoke about in the last podcast. Jonathan says... I was thinking about what Efka said about Photograph. I love the game and the abruptness of the ending wasn't ever a big problem for me, but I can see where he's coming from. Maybe just taking about 12 cards from the deck before starting and playing to the end would make that more intuitive. Although maybe a natural sense of when the game should end would also come naturally as that tends to happen with card games. I think that's very true. A lot of card games have that sort of you know, if I play this enough, it almost becomes like second nature, you know. I, I certainly experienced that with certain card games. I know I keep referencing Durak or Durnus, as I used to call it, as a as a wee little Efka. Um, <laughs> you found that funny? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, oh, come on. Um, I was ridiculous as a child. Anyway. Uh, I know you broke a lot of Glasses. Vases. Vases. Yes. Seven, apparently. Uh. According to my mother, seven vases <laughs> were broken. Vases. Yeah. Uh, and I'm consciously remembering at least one of those incidents. So, yeah, there's like a natural familiarity to, to a card game that just comes to you the more you play it. I think if you played Photograph enough that sort of would melt away. Jonathan also said that when we were talking about Koi Koi, it reminded them of a Korean game called Go Stop. So just that's worth thinking about and checking out, maybe. I've never heard of it, but uh, I imagine that, you know, uh, adjacent countries will Mm. often, you know, kind of adapt familiar uh, designs and put their own spins onto it. Mm -hmm. So there's probably something to it. Like we have uh, Cornish pasties and you in Lithuania have a version of a Cornish pasty. That's nothing like (laughs) that. But yes, that's true. We do. Alliance says, 
An aspect of koi koi that I think you failed to mention and that I find fascinating is how much Japanese culture is embedded within it. As a disclaimer, I am also an outsider to this and I'm repeating secondhand information, but an obvious one is cherry blossom viewing, which you get by collecting both the bright sakura flower card and the sake cup. This is a reference to how sake is traditionally consumed when going on picnics to view blooming cherry blossoms. Bordier Butterfly is probably the most famous set in koi koi and it sounds like an arbitrary combination of animals but these three are known to give good luck with the boar symbolizing fertility deer known for wealth and butterfly for longevity what's more is that these animals are also associated with the plants for their month it's all poetic and feels like it's telling a story almost well first of all thank you for writing in with that i'm somewhat familiar with japanese culture through my literature studies but it's a little bit tangential and certainly not enough to color in the gaps of knowledge uh, that are needed here uh, to understand the you know poetics of this game. And here's a funny thing. So uh, there were the Sakura sets that were mm-hmm. mentioned in that comment, and we didn't play with those because the rules that were presented in the pencil first uh, version of the Hanafuda deck, they did not have them as standard. Mm. So they were included as a variant. And we didn't really get to mess around with the variants uh, because there is a lot of them. Mm. And it's it's hard to know which one's good or bad. And I think a, a more exhaustive sort of uh, review would benefit that. And we definitely didn't go far enough with, with Koi Koi to present that viewpoint. And I can certainly appreciate a lot of that. And... And I think any card game has that because it always ties in cultural history into how and why it was played. Uh, mm. And and it's certainly really interesting to have that in come in the form that isn't the standard deck of cards. Because just by having that change, you know, you're introducing already like new elements in terms of how you interact with the game. And we certainly are very much aware of that in in this modern board game hobby because all we've been doing is iterating on board game components that have Mm. existed in the past and going, no, look, you can have these new ones. And and a lot of new card games come out like that. They come out with their own decks, right? Uh, Twisting the formulas. And I I definitely appreciated the experience. Yeah, I love a game that that teaches you a little bit or gives you a window into a bit of cultural history of a, of the place it's come from. Mm. Like if you play Durnus, right? It, it, what does that teach you about Lithuania? Nothing, right? I don't know. Does it? I don't know. Maybe it teaches a you a cards. little bit about our character. Right? Well, maybe, yeah, maybe that's true. But uh, yeah, it, it's something that's, that's really fascinating. And it's something that I really, not just with card games, I really enjoyed doing for um, the board game biography series is looking into what's kind of behind that mm. game um, and and the cultural elements within it um one other thing though like why why is this why does a butterfly symbolize longevity they they some of them only last a day i don't i don't understand i, mean, I don't maybe it's because they transform you know maybe, like they, yeah. they do have that sort of transformation so i guess like there's sequential steps to a butterfly's mm. life Hmm. Um, that symbolizes a lot of things for me. Maybe not longevity directly, but mm. I think it's maybe longevity adjacent. 
Okay. Richard says, wind the film is great. It has that I wish I could just pass tension of Arboretum. The good shot bonus coming for taking a lot of a colour is a nicely thematic of the digital age. Best way to get good photos is just to take loads. I think the sudden end would be less of a problem at three. At two, you discard the full field. So if the deck has three or less cards, it'll end right there. Whereas at three or four, you only discard the face up cards. So it's much less likely that the game will end on a draw. It's true. We only did experience this as a two player game. Uh, I'd be very keen to try it with more players. It's quite slight. I'm not sure I would necessarily pull it out with more people. Like it's quite slight and quite intimate. And I definitely enjoyed it a lot playing it with just you. Uh, and and it feels like maybe that's the one thing that changes over that sort of tension mm. when the game ends. Maybe is 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 a little bit more tuned to a three or four player game. Uh, it's nice to know that. It's nice that it isn't there. And I'm now sort of tempted to try it on more players. <laughs> but but I'm okay playing it with just two. It, it irked me, but it didn't irk me that much, you know. Thank you for all your comments. And if you have anything to say to us, email elaine at nopunincluded.com. Our first game is Vicindas Volk, which comes from publisher Histogame, designers Richard Civelle and Pierre Sylvester, and artists Friedman Bocco and Richard Shako. I probably said that wrong. I'm, I'm sorry. I probably mash half the names that I read out on this. Sorry. It's okay. I, I commend your attitude towards always trying and find the correct pronunciations of people's yes. names. I know you don't always succeed at that, but it is genuinely impossible. And I think the fact that you try, I, I, I think that's really impressive. Thank you. I, well, it, it's only polite, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like to try and find out how to pronounce someone's name if you don't know. Uh, but sometimes it is impossible because people pronounce the names differently from other people. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, it's easy to relate when you've been on the other end of it yourself. Uh, and I've heard so many people butcher your last name. Uh, so Both of my last names, yeah. 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 Oh, even you're like... Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. okay, okay. So, yeah. Yeah, I know. It will But your I, other one is easy. It it's just been a thing like my whole life anyway. It doesn't matter. So let me start with <laughs> How did you feel playing as the Soviets again, Efka? No, that okay, we can, we can get to that later. I, I let me start with I I want to be diplomatic about this, right? Because I I think I I this is very nuanced, right? Mm. And and our approach to this is not going to be nuanced because this is clearly a game clearly a game that you benefit from when you know it inside out right and i respect it but i did not like it uh and this is probably the first pair sylvester game where i have just bounced off of it uh we played it twice once as each side uh, so I got to experience both playing as the Soviets and the West, and so did you. And the game is, I haven't even said what the game is. Uh, the game <laughs> is, you know, the, the division of East and West Germany uh, during the Soviet period, basically. And you you play either as the Soviets, uh, you know, the East Germany, or uh, you play as as the West. And I know so little about this. And I think... It's very telling that I do because I grew up in the Soviets, so I should. No, I. Uh, <laughs> I should know more about this, right? But but actually, 
our like schools and history lessons and so all, all of that stuff, right? And our history lessons were exhaustive. We had so many history lessons in school. We had like world history and Lithuanian history as separate subjects, mm-hmm. right? So we had two history subjects, right? And there were there were more than one class each week of each, right? So history was really, really a heavy subject in school. So I, I'm surprised now looking back on it how little I know and how little was taught to me and how little that subject was kept out of like, you know, public curriculum or, or, or just general public knowledge. Um, but yes, it, it, it's clearly, you know, a, a very impactful historical event uh, to Germany, you know, having been split in two is, I, I can't imagine what that's like, you know, and the division that that creates. Do you remember when the wall fell? I do remember. I remember watching it on the telly. Yeah, but again, I was like, well, "It's a wall." I, like, <laughs> it, it didn't. It didn't mean I was so little, right? Uh-huh. Like, it didn't mean anything because, like, we just weren't informed enough no. about it. Um, and it was fascinating to play this historical game. So this is a historical conflict game that that simulated that environment. Uh, in in a similar way, uh, and uh, partly why we decided to explore Beer Sindas Walk is because I think people were writing in and saying, you know, hey, more war games? Question mark. And <laughs> and you know, we we did votes for women, and and I wanted to pick up uh, another game by a designer that I knew, you know, I I liked his work, right? And uh, and it's been sort of this game that's always been on my periphery. And I've been meaning to try it. And I just really bounced off so hard off of it. Because whilst it does do the history, and this there's, there's, there's not quite as much about the history as in Votes for Women. Uh, it's it's a much more, it, it's from, um, it's a much older game, first of all. Uh, it, it's also from, I think, a smaller publisher than Fort Circle Games. Fort Circle Games is a pretty new publisher, but they've already, you know, they've sort of establishing themselves with these lavish uh, historical, you know, game productions. Th- this is less that. The the artwork is more Spartan, but I did enjoy the artwork. It's very, uh, um, it's very, like, there's almost... I don't want to, because this is often associated with the Soviets, so I don't want to say it, but it's almost brutalist, right? Like, because uh, it's it, very sparse, right? And very direct and very like, like, here it is. And it's got that sort of, um, you know, like those Che Guevara t-shirts uh, that where you just like, it's just two tones, mm-hmm. right? So it's like red and black uh, on the t-shirt. And here it's the same. It's well, functional. Too. Yeah, yeah. It's like two-tone artwork, right? It is evocative in a way, even though it is nowhere near as aesthetically pleasing as something like Votes for Women. Um, I don't know. I, I enjoyed that about it because it was very like line drawing y. Yes. I, and just a single color. Yeah. And it's very gray. It's so incredibly wow. gray. Uh, but, but again, it, it sort of sets the mood right, you know? Mm. Uh, and, you know, all these cards depict all these historical events. And and the weird tension of the game, the game itself is so bizarre because, it, it, like like many of these sort sort of conflict simulatory games, you you play cards and you can either do the event on the card or you can do one of the standard actions and you know like affect the map somehow. And in this case, it's a map of Germany, right? That's literally split down, you know. Uh, and in, then a into, separate little map of Berlin that split down. Yeah, what you do effectively on the map is you have unrest, so you want to minimize unrest in all your regions. You build factories, and 
infrastructure. And when the infrastructure connects those factories, the two factories that it connects get better. Get better. Mm. And the infrastructure is just like this road, basically. And on the road, you I don't know, you build a railroad or something like that. Or That's cabling. Some, I don't or know. cabling, yeah. <laughs> but basically, you connect two factories. Whenever you connect, both of those factories upgrade. So you kind of, you have this sort of snaking web of factories that you keep adding bits of infrastructure to to connect them more and expand them into different directions and you know they all get better and then if you have enough factories you can put down living standard tokens which says hey this area lives good now because you know like the color tv is now present in germany right and (laughs) and suddenly everyone's happy uh, I imagine that's exactly how it worked. You know, in, in that regard, it feels similar and familiar. Oh, I build factories, I connect them, they grow bigger, you know, victory points? Well, no, not quite. So basically, the weird thing about this game is that there are a number of tension tracks where, like, it either swings towards the west or the east, and each player, like a tug of war, is trying to pull the token on on those tracks to their side because then they get bonuses rather than the other person. So you have you have like a priority marker that you know it's whoever goes first and then if it's on your side you get to you know dismantle if if I'm the west I get to dismantle east infrastructure whereas if it's on the east side the east gets to build more uh, factories and infrastructure. You have the communist track, obviously, you know, and uh, the socialists. Com- so, yes, yeah. So the specifically, yeah. Okay, it's these pink cubes that the East player gets, uh, and whenever they get unrest, instead of like normal unrest, they get like the pink communist unrest, and it's just like, hello, I like, I, I'm, I'm one of you, fellow kids, just like a normal unhappy person, but actually. I'm fake and happy, so it doesn't count like you putting unrest. So if if the track is on the west side, then the east player has to lose these pink cubes, and uh, if the track is on the east side, then they get more pink cubes. So there, there's these tension tracks. There's a third one um, that's just like uh, uh, Western money mm-hmm. because the east needs Western money to pay for its living standards. Uh, because you want to have living standards, because if you don't have living standards, then the side of your country is not doing well. And you want can to be attacked. Yeah, it can be attacked. It's, it's It has a lot of these familiar tropes, um, you know, tug of war tracks, building up infrastructure, you know, uh, part of that feels war gamey, part of that feels, you know, sort of Euro gamey. But it plays like like no other game, because there's no inherent benefit like you don't get a cookie for building any of this you know like if you were playing a euro game like even brass or something right i connected a bunch of things yay suddenly money points right and actually building the factories and infrastructure is somewhat similar to brass but only tangentially right only in appearance i think you're almost trying to stop losing rather than actually win yes that's how it feels sometimes when you're building stuff you're you're just trying or you're you're placing unrest you're just trying to make the other side worse than than your side that's it really pretty much because uh the other side of these is so when you take a card you can always spend it for build points or doing standard actions but some cards are like directly aggressive towards the other player Mm -hmm. like oh put a bunch of unrest in your areas and Unrest is bad because if you get too much, this is the titular moment of the game, uh, mass protests appear. And mass protests come in these two flavors. For the East, it's 
Vir sind das Volk, which we is are the people. we are the mm-hmm. people, and it's four tokens. So one says Vir, then Sind, then Das, then Volk, which always confused me because uh, Volk is the German word for people, but yeah. in Russian Volk is a wolf, right? So we are the wolf. <laughs> That's how I read that, mm-hmm. right? Anyway, and then the uh, I can't remember the German version of the Western mass protest tokens, but it's no power to nobody, nobody. right? And whenever a region has foreign rest cubes, you have to put one of these four protest tokens in. And if at the end of the round, in this four rounds in the game, all four of your protest tokens are on the board, they have other effects, like prevent you from building in the area. They're actually really frustrating and sometimes hard to get rid of. But um, yeah, if, if you have four of them, you lose the game, right? It's not like whenever you have four of them. It's at the end of the round if you have four of them. And that's the key moment. Forcing another player to lose the game is hard. There are multiple ways. For example, the East could lose if they don't have enough pink cubes that they need to distribute or lose if they're on the other side of the track. And and that's sort of, yeah, sure, I, I can sort of see how I could get there if I really pushed one area. But you have to really focus towards achieving that. And, and it's hard to focus towards that because you're like the cards that you play they're not randomly drawn there's a neat little system where there's like a display and you see like half the cards available that round and you pick them one by one so it's always like oh there's like seven cards and there's some good ones for me and good ones for you so if i steal the ones that are good for you i could deny them to you and there's some nice interplay there and a lot of the mechanisms, when I describe them like this, they, they sound quite fun, I think. You know, <laughs> there's like an element of this that, that always feels compelling and interesting. But at the end of the day, it's it, it's this game that sort of pushes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, right? And it feels like one step forward, one step back, one step forward, one step back. But I've been withholding one important bit. The East wins by default if it hasn't lost by the end of the four rounds. And it's really hard to make another player lose. I've, 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 in, in both of our games, we really, really struggled to push that towards Yeah, happening. both games ended in a kind of stalemate, didn't they? Yeah, which means East wins by default. Right. I know that people are going to go, with experience, you know, you will eventually, you know, and yes, I get that. But here's another reason why I don't want more of that experience, right? Not only... So, actually, can you speak to this? Because you learned this game, didn't you? The rule book... Uh, I picked up, started reading, and thought, ah! Uh, and if it hadn't have been the game that a game that we were talking about in this podcast today, I would have put that away and got something else off the shelf and learnt that instead. I had a bit of a nightmare with the rule book. Uh, I just found it very woolly and confusing, and there's there's no. I mean, I know this sounds like I'm five, but there's no pictures for the examples. So it gives you examples and doesn't give you pictures and, and, and things aren't necessarily in the right order. So it will, t- it will give you something to do with the concept. It will give you what to do with, with this thing. But then you don't know what the thing is, for, you know, until another couple of sentences later. And it's not far away, but it's, but you, I just, oh, I just couldn't, I couldn't get my brain around it. It, it took me so long to learn this and I had to watch a video on someone playing the game um, to try and and even they played it wrong honestly and then had to put up like subtitles you know with sorry this was wrong this was wrong 
And I just found the whole thing a bit overwhelming. Yeah, I watched you struggle with that. And some part of the rule book I had to experience for myself as well. Because here's another thing, and I've never noticed... I mean, I noticed this a little bit in Pear Sylvester games. But his games are often... They have a lot of these like niche clauses, right? Mm. And in The King is Dead and Brian Baru, uh, there were a lot of like these like funky tiebreaker rules and like they're quite bitty if this, if this, if this, if this, then that. Okay, I'll try to remember that. But in games like Brian Baru and The King is Dead, which are like significantly lighter than Virsinda's Walk, I could bear with that, mm-hmm. right? I was like, okay, just look this up in the rule book again or print out a reminder or whatever. It's fine. This is not fine here. This this is you constantly go back to the rule book, which is not laid out well either. Uh, and it's it's got this sort of standard war game formatting where it's point one, point two, mm. point three, point four, but it it's just in it's laid out in a way that it makes it very hard to look up. Um, and there was that card that we weren't quite sure what it does, and there is in the rule book like a card reference. So you look mm-hmm. up the number of the card and it tells, it gives you a bit more explanation about what it is. And we looked it up and it said, okay, it does this and then the rest should be clear. And we went, no, that's the bit that I don't know what it does. <laughs> <laughs> ah. ah, that's quite funny. Yeah, the, the, the game was quite a bear to learn. But on top of that, it's quite a bear to play from these rules. Right. And, and again, it's not just a rule book issue. It's the bittiness of the rules. And some of that is the war game Chrome. So Chrome is sure, a term that yeah. describes um, uh, when a war game uses rules just for historical reasons rather than to add to the gameplay and makes them a bit convoluted. And and okay, that's fine. I can live with that a little bit. But but when when you have to hunt rules down all the time and just go, how does this work? It just made it not smooth. And I appreciate that maybe I am not a person who's into this genre and therefore that's not quite for me, but it wasn't quite for me. I I think, I I think you you made a good point there. It's, it maybe is just that we are not experienced enough in this because we are used to looking at a like Euro game rule book where if there is an icon and it says it does this, Mm -hmm. then it does this. Not, not then you play the game and oh there's that icon oh but it has this little tiny thing next to it as well what the heck does it do now yeah. like does it do something else or and we're just not used to that and i think it took us some time to get our heads around how it worked definitely uh, and that that made the experience a bit more frustrating and and i think i said to you um that i found this game to have too much frustration and not enough fun for the level of fun that I experienced yeah. there was it, it was outweighed by the frustration of the rules and the bittiness and everything else having said that I see why this game is compelling right I I, I see the interesting parts of it you know the building of in, the infrastructure is a nice puzzle this sort of constant like I uh, do do I focus on building myself up but that's like not good enough you know because the only thing that that does you know building all these factories you know and 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 infrastructures and connecting everything and doing this massive you know eurogamey brassy web you know the only reward of that is like 
I'm permitted to put more living standards down, mm. but you don't necessarily even always want to do that, right? It's good to put down a living standard, but it's complicated. You don't want to make one area too good because then the er- other areas get upset and they start revolting, And their living right? standards go down. Yeah. Um, and so th- there's a lot of nuance to how it works and it's quite fun. And the, the card mechanism I really liked rather than just, here's some cards, yes. you know, like play yes. them however you like. Actually, the, seeing what your opponent could take away from you and some card the the really clever part is some cards you like the event on the card can only be played for example by the east player but anyone can take that card it's just that you can do basic actions with that card Mm -hmm. rather than the event itself so the card might not be as good for you but denying it to your opponent might be crucial right so that card interplay i think really really works very well and I haven't seen many games do that, where it's just like, take whatever you want, mm-hmm. but think carefully, mm. right? And that really, really compelled me. But it was just mired in this in this claggy rules mess that I didn't appreciate first, because, again, the rulebook was a chore. And, um, and there's just a bit too much chrome, a bit too much, if this, then this, then this, then this, then that. Um, it wasn't overwhelming. It was just frustrating. I also really liked the, the card mechanism. I particularly liked, though, and you, I don't think you've mentioned this yet, that, that some of the cards are jewel-coloured. So you're, mm. you're literally looking at the colour of the artwork on the card, which is why the artwork is so sparsely coloured. It's either red or it's yellow, and there's some black because, you know, writing or whatever. Um, but there are cards that are jewel-coloured, and they have red and yellow artwork. And then either player can use those for um the event but you get to negate one of the symbols that is on that card because those cards i mean quite a lot of the cards will have a benefit for you and a negative to to you yeah right but those ones particularly you can negate one of them and that was really interesting making the decision on do i uh not give myself something or do i take something away from you what do i take away from this card yeah those dual cards actually were really clever because Mm. whilst most of the cards are like there's a little bit of pain on this card (laughs) if i do this right but i can live with it whereas the dual cards is just like this is bad for both of us or this is great for both of us Mm. which is bad for me as well as it's good for me so it's bad for both (laughs) of us right like there's a lot of I don't want to say double thing because that means like you think that I yeah. think that you think, but there is a lot of that sort of brain motion where it's just like, oh, but, oh, but, oh, but, oh, but, oh, right. It is very, very smartly designed, right? But at the same time, I just, I think this is a game that could do with a second edition. Honestly, I think I I would like to see a more modern, more updated version of Virsindas Volk because, because I think it has so much potential, potential mm. and it needs a little bit of cleaning up and a little bit of development work. Still to come, we have Carnegie and we'll be reading out some points from Paul's interview. But first, we have a pearl of a game in which you'll have a whale of a time. Whale Riders comes from publisher Grail Games by designer Rainer Knizia and artist Vincent Dutrait. Well, isn't that everything you need to know? Isn't it? Right? Mm. Rainer Knizia, Vincent Dutrait. Yeah, I, it was fun. I liked it. It's a good game. Uh, that's it. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I mean, let me be frank. I picked up Whale Riders because Mark Bigney from So Very Wrong About Games 
both Mark and Walker, they, they, they frequently mention whale riders and they say it's good. So I wanted to see for myself. Um, yeah, it's good. I, I, so I should note that it's no longer available, uh, because not only did the publisher go bust, uh, but oh. before the publisher went bust, they they had a spat with Kenizia where Kenizia, uh, uh like said they voided. The, the first they said, "Oh, the Kenizia games aren't selling well enough, so we're not going to do them anymore." And then Kenizia said, "No, no, no, you voided the contract, so we broke it off." Right. So there was a little bit of a you know hoo ha uh, there, yeah. And, and after that, I think the publisher went bust. So you can't buy Whale Riders, although I suspect that knowing the way Kenitsu operates, uh, he's going to sell the license to that game, uh, maybe retheme it slightly and do that game again somewhere, yeah, it, somehow. It is a game right? that, that would absolutely lend itself to multiples of themes. Yes, and there maybe n- even slightly less appropriative ones. There's nothing about this game that wouldn't fit in a hundred of other themes. Yeah. So basically, you 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 play you play a whale rider, a whale rider, a person riding a whale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some cultural appropriation going on there. I, as I, I mentioned, know, do people ride whales. I don't think anyone rides whales, but it's clearly of a place and of a region, you know. And you know, uh, it, it would be somewhere where people hunt whales. Though there's no whale hunting in the game, you know. Um, no, because you're riding them. Yeah, but there is whale meat out there, and I suspect not in the game. Yes, there is on on the tokens. One of the resources oh, that's you meat. collect. That's not whale meat. That's it. Lo- it. it looks it could like be anything. It meat. looks very much like I've whale meat. I've never seen whale meat in real life. Okay, so. I think I think artistically that was depicting oh, whale that's meat. That's a bit icky. Yes, isn't it just? <laughs> but otherwise, it's very pleasant. Uh, so yeah, you play a whale rider, which is someone who rides a whale, and then you you basically go very Takedo style, like forward on the track and when you re- when you reach the end of the track you go back and when you go back you can't go anymore that's that's going to be game end for you you just get to buy up some points as you go along you are going to be picking up resources uh so there's there's like these tiles on each spot that you land and these tiles are placed randomly you know from a bag and they could have one of a herb or two of a meat or three of a herb you know it could be anything so there's uh herbs meats um pearls per, no well pearls are the victory points oh, they yeah, could okay. come out yeah but there's like i think there's four standard resources then there's a wild crystal and a, and, and a pearl that's uh, pots they're pots <laughs> i think <laughs> I I, yeah there's maybe some pots very generic resources right <laughs> and, and yeah a wild resource and victory points that you can pick up and you spend money on which resource you want to buy because each spot has a sliding track like um like in century spice road or any game like that where like the first one is free the second one is a coin the third one is two coins the fourth one is three coins and each spot has that sliding track so uh and you have two actions in a turn you can move or you can buy a resource uh or you can you can fulfill a contract yeah. which is like if you got the requisite resources that's on the card that you have that says hey have one of each or have two of each and you'll get some money and some victory points right uh, and so you, you know, you you spend your actions deciding to, uh, do I want to move along further or do I want to buy up more from this space, stay in this space? Do I need to get to the end first? You know, um, when I describe it, it, it sounds like a thousand games in existence mm-hmm. and it doesn't sound particularly exciting. And when you read the rules, you said to me, 
This doesn't sound very exciting. And I said to you, Elaine, it's a Reiner Knizia game. The game's going to come out in play, not in the rules. That's true. How right was I? I think this is a fine game. And we said that it would be a perfect game for playing like with our parents. Yes. There's nothing in it that would be a struggle for someone that hadn't played a lot of games. Um, and and for that, I think it is perfect. And, you know, you're just going along. It's It's a very easy to go through track like you, you you're not wondering where shall i go you're, you're literally following a, a singular path yeah there's a yeah. line that's there's it there's a right? line that's it right um and you can't fanny about or faff about like with what you want you you just buy something uh or, or you move on that's that's kind of it and you know exactly on the cards what you need to collect and you can discard those cards if you don't want to collect yeah it that's you, the ticket to ride right? bit right yeah yeah right exactly so I think it's a perfectly good game. I, But like you said, really, it is a game that <laughs> doesn't do something different from any other game that we've ever played. But it felt a little bit more than just just, just that. I, I think there was... Uh, there is that Knizia tension. We're not going to say this game is amazing or anything like that. But but there is that Knizia tension that makes, it, makes you go, oh, this is fun, you know? Like, it, it didn't it surprise fun. me. Yes, yeah. it was fun. It didn't surprise me in any way, but I had fun. However, there is a second part to this review. Oh, because yeah, well. because <laughs> then also included in the game were two modules. And uh, again, the modules didn't sound like they did anything fantastic. You know, pretty standard stuff. Like, the first one was basically achievements. Be the first to do this. Get a biscuit, you know. Mm. And then the second one was starting player powers. Now, in our second game, we bunked both of the modules in because they looked pretty simple. And this isn't like a plot twist. They remain simple. <laughs> but it also broke the game. I'm pretty certain it broke the game, right? The modules felt... I, I, just, I don't know who developed this and whether this was a Kinesia's part or the developer's part that added these modules. You know, whoever felt like the game needed more zhuzh. They made the game worse. They made the game so much worse because one of them, so like one of these powers was basically um, like you got a power that said, as an action, you can swap on the space you're on, you can swap two tiles spaces. So if a tile was costing free money... Yeah, you could swap it to the zero. To the zero space, it now costs zero money. But, but that's, that's an, an action. action. Now, I got a starting player power that said, oh, when you buy from somewhere, you, you rather than just buying one tile, which is what or you're normally action. allowed, you can buy as many as you like. With the same action. And that is every turn a potential bonus of free actions. Yeah, right? you hoovered up quite a lot. Yeah, so you can't always obviously buy everything because you're limited by how much money you have. But couple that with achievements, which I achieved all of them first. Yeah, you did. Because I had such a leg up, right? And you also raced down the track and back again and then like had all this money then just, you know, bought all the pearls and, and I, I, was, I was in the dust. I really yeah, was. Yeah, it like... just was completely unfun. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying the modules aren't balanced or whatever, right? Because that's a bold statement and maybe I don't know something even. Again, I have some experience with games and this game isn't particularly complicated, right? I don't um, think we did anything wrong. The, the no. rules for the expansion, no, or not the expansions, the modules are... Maybe I don't see something small. is what I mean, right? Yeah, right I see. You know, maybe after 25 plays, you know, these... <laughs> 
special player powers will suddenly start to make sense within the meta game of whale riders. And I say I that think with you're a little thinking it. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I say I that with a little facetiousness. Too deeply into this, honestly. And and you know, maybe maybe there's that, but it just felt so annoying even to me who had this power is like well i can do five things on my turn and you got a special player power that gives you a marginal advantage at the cost of an actual action uh you know i don't know that was annoying so um my recommendation would be to not go buy well riders because you can't but <laughs> but if a copy like floats by you somehow and you are looking for a game you can play with like anyone you and know it's this quick. is like yeah. if you're at a, a board game cafe or something and you've got like half an hour before yeah. your table becomes free or whatever mm. i think this is a great game well the, i mean this is the sort of game that's probably you know the weight of game that's normally played at board game cafes because people play pretty light games and i think this is perfect for something like that you know it's easy to teach mm. it's so easy to teach it's like move or take you know <laughs> spend resource get point right like and that's and it there's only one resource that you're spending you're only ever spending coins you're, you're not having to collect like um different resources to, in order to collect the resources on the board you yeah, know there's yeah, no yeah. like chain of resources you yeah, just yeah. you spend the money you take the resource you you fulfill the contract that's yeah it. that's it that's the game right and it's dense enough you know in a in a way that kinetic can design you know it's good i liked it it's fine uh, slightly appropriative and I guess that's it we had a lot of nice comments and conversation about Paul's interview so I want to talk about that a little bit with people saying how much they enjoyed it and how insightful it was if you haven't had the chance to listen to it yet check out our last episode of Talk Cardboard or better yet you can subscribe to our Patreon where you'll not only be able to listen to Paul's insightful comments on the problem of ephemerality and consumerism in board games in full but also join in the discussion yeah it's very worth mentioning that if you are a Patreon subscriber of No Pun Included. So that's patreon.com slash no pun included. Link in the description. You get bonus episodes of this podcast on an RSS feed as well. So you can just put it in your favorite non-Spotify, apologies, podcast device. And, you know, you'll just get the bonus episodes together on the same day and even slightly earlier than everyone else um, with, with the main episode, right? Uh, and yeah, we're going to have a bonus episode every time we have a normal episode. This week's bonus episode has my top 10 solo games and also some of Elaine torturing me with a special feature that I don't know what it is yet. I want to read a question on this topic that we've had from David about the role of financial privilege in the hobby. They say, do you guys ever consider how the likes of NPI, SUSD et al contribute to the FOMO slash consumerist nature of the hobby? The question isn't meant to be finger pointy in the slightest. You guys all do amazing work in giving the likes of me advice on what I should and shouldn't be buying. But what you each are doing is regularly making us all aware of the latest and greatest and putting those games in our heads, potentially increasing that FOMO fairy dust that pervades the hobby. Well, thank you for noticing that we do try and do the work there. I think it's important to note that uh, one of the big, like, sort of main points of our ethos, really, I think, 
is that we're not here to market stuff. We are here to review games. Uh, and that's partly why we don't work with publishers, but also that's why we're so much more critical, I think. And people say, we often get the comment, uh, you're so ne- do, you, do you even <laughs> like games? Yeah, I love them. Frankly, I want a lot of them to be better because I know they can be. Because I've, I've also seen the really great games. And I, I can tell a good design, you know, pretty easily by now. But it's not just about that. It's identifying, you know, where where a game's shortcomings are and where they could be improved and all of that. And that's frequently why we choose to talk about the games that we choose to talk about. But also, I want to touch on the other side of this comment and, and sort of the, the relationship of, of audience and creator here, right? Note, I did not use the word influencer because I think therein lies the problem. The word influencer has become pretty big in our society. We we, we are aware of what it means and it has pretty negative connotations and maybe deservedly so, right? But I also think that the word influencer has become synonymous in, in some regards from the general public to attribute to, to anyone who makes anything uh, that then goes on the internet. And I think that is slightly frustrating. You know, like when we watch Triangle of Sadness, there is certainly, you know, some words there about the influencer culture of not just influences but our entire society and how we view them how they view us all of that and it's becoming quite cynical that's a great film by the way if you haven't seen it go ahead and watch Uh, just before you fire off that recommendation there's probably a thousand trigger warnings you have to put before that's true yeah right so look up what that film is before you watch it that's it's not for everyone anyway um but yes, as a commentary, as a cynical commentary on modern society, it de- definitely does the trick. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think there's a lot of cynicism that's being attributed right now to anyone who does anything online, and and the current events really don't help. You know, with the acquisition of Twitter by mm. you know who and all of that. You know, anyone who makes anything online just just looks like a pillock right now. You know, let's let's be honest, right? And, and I'm not, I don't want to say something like, oh, but we're not all the same or whatever, right? But but I think it is important that that it, to recognize that any any group, any niche is more nuanced than, well, it's just like this. Mm-hmm. And yes, in, in some regards, if you look at our hobby, it is a consumerist hobby because it is centered around physical products that you buy, Right. Those products relate to experiences, but they are still physical products. And as any physical product, you know, especially in niche markets, it tends to fall into, you know, collectability issues, FOMO. And and I recognize also, and I think this is very important, I'm going to speak about myself because mm. I can speak about myself because I have ADHD, so I can speak about ADHD, okay? Um, it is important to recognize that people with certain neurodivergences like ADHD, you know, have compulsive behaviors when it comes to FOMO, you know, uh, they can be easier preyed upon, right? It is, I've certainly know this because I've experienced it myself. I have a lot of times gone, oh, I don't want to miss out on that, you know, even, even done the standard, watch the shut up, sit down video and they praised the game and went, I better go get that now because if I do like it, I won't be able to get it later because, you know, they just praise the game and then there's the SUSD effect and it's going to sell out, right? Yeah, 
we're all susceptible to that. Some of us more than others. And that, I think that's very important. But at the same time, I think it's important to note that some, I'm not going to say everyone, but some people who are people who make things on the internet about board games work very hard to not promote this, you know, consumerist compulsion. When you review a game, there's, there's an element of like, do you, do you blame a chicken for laying eggs, you know, and contributing to the mass consumption of eggs? But when, you re when your job is to review games, you cannot help but review games, right? That is a function of what we do. And I can't, I can't decouple that. So it's something that we are conscious of. But at the same time, we have to recognize that it's going to inevitably impact people and sometimes, sometimes even make them make the wrong decision. I would say, for example, you know, is an actor conscious of the effect that it has on people, right? Because an actor, when they portray a character, this may be a very compelling character, but not necessarily a good character, might influence a person to behave, you know, in an undesirable way, because they, they might watch that character and be like, oh yeah, I want to be just like them, right? That's, that's influencing someone to make a bad decision. Is an actor aware that they can do that? Yes. Will they stop acting because of that? No, right? So it's a very tough question. And it's a really difficult discussion because I absolutely see both sides of that argument. All I can say is that we are doing our best. I think you summed that up really, really well. Um, and it's something that we speak about quite a lot because we are aware of our potential um, influence <laughs> over people. Um, but something we've always tried to do is uh, make sure that when people watch us, they are not advertised to. And if they do decide then to get that game, it will be something that they are getting because they really mm. want it. Uh, yeah. And they they fall in love with that game, not our presentation of that game, mm. but the game itself. Um, and I think it is very important to differentiate between um, the excitement of getting something, which is the FOMO, and the excitement of the experience of playing it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think we've tried to show and portray in our videos the the excitement of playing it and sharing it and mm. and having that game to share with your friends or to play solo or whatever, right? Yeah. But, but having those experiences, um, and I think that's what we find important. Yeah, because we reflect on the experience of playing the game rather than, you know, the collecting side or like this game is value. You know, you get two hundred cards for your. That, I mean, see, once once you start down that road, yeah, there yes. is no going back. And I actually, yeah. I, I'll be very frank. I'd caution anyone if if you watch someone who does that, right? I'm not really not singling anyone out here, but if you, because I don't, I actually don't watch enough board game videos myself. I know that there's probably people who make those sorts of videos, but I will be very frank. I don't know who they are because I just don't watch them. Right. But, but I imagine there are people who talk about that. Right. I, I would caution you against watching videos like that because they will send you down that path, the path of addiction and collectability and sort of just 
you might you might get a kick out of it for a while, but I can tell you from personal experience, just collecting things is going to start feeling pretty empty in your life. I think you can be susceptible to it too because you're used to watching like like we're I guess I don't want to say over oh, a generation, but yeah. we are of a generation who've grown up uh, watching uh, television mm. uh, that has very specific advertisement slots. Yes. Right? You don't watch a program and be advertised to in that program. Yeah. Right? You know that when when the, the program breaks, then there's going to be adverts. You can go make a cup of tea. And go, you don't yeah. have to watch it. But that's it. England. You, you know what those things are. Sorry, that's um, that's specific that's, to England, right? Yes, yeah. Or Britain. Well, yes. Yeah. Okay, that's... Yes. Do you not have that in Lithuania? I don't think the standards are quite the same. I don't know what the rules about product placement are because I, I'm not sure they're necessarily the same as they are here. I know they're not the same in America. No, that's... That's my point. Right, yeah. right? That's my mm. point. Depending on your cultural background and what your mm. experience, what your experiences are, then you are going to be more susceptible to that kind of thing anyway, because you're going to watch something thinking it's a um, just a, a showcase of something when it's actually a, a pushing it. But yeah, just to, to, to again sum it up and just mm. reiterate it again because I think this is important. We we recognise that yes. we have that effect, and we are not going, well, whatever, you know. At the same time, we cannot escape having that effect (laughs) by the nature of what our job is, right? Um, I think you summed it up well with the actor analogy. Well, I I mean, yes, but that's why I wanted to sort of elaborate on that again, because in that analogy, there is no responsibility. We we try and showcase responsibility. I also want to bring up a point that Paul Dean himself made on Discord, uh, which I think is something we should all be thinking about, not just as people who play games, but as designers and publishers too. Paul says, if people need new games a lot, I do wonder if that says something about the longevity of those games and ultimately whether the appeal of those games is driven entirely by how good they are or more by how novel they are. There's a lot to chew on there. There is, isn't right? there? There's, yeah. there's a huge broad topic, you know, mm. around this. Um, I've certainly lamented some uh, publishers when they like i've had conversations with publishers that basically said to me well you know what kickstarter is the future because it's like <laughs> you know like you you get your core audience you build it up and like retail is dead and i'm like yeah sure maybe and you know exactly how many you're going to sell before you even you know yeah make anything yeah right i mean it is an interest free loan and if you need to that to survive then as Paul mentioned, what does that yeah, what does say, say about, about the longevity of your business and the belief in your game? You So many games go to Kickstarter, get printed once, and then they're gone mm. because they are a novelty product. Again, ephemerality. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's it's tricky um, because I, I think a lot of, I mean, all of us, I think, don't want our hobby to become consumerist orientated. Mm. We want it to be something we share and we like and we enjoy together we don't want it to be driven by the the financial yeah. side of it surely if even if you are a collector and you enjoy collecting okay right that's great yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. but you must recognize that the important part of this hobby is not having it's playing right because if you are just buying board games to have you know i mean i'm not going to judge you but you're in the minority there. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. But I think. I think collecting is is a a hobby in itself, and that's fine. If yeah. if you want to collect board games, yeah. Um. But but then why are you collecting them? What are you are you collecting them for? 
like who they're designed by or like why yeah uh, surely they're like i guess there's aesthetic appeal or whatever but but there's better things to collect <laughs> right like something I mean, you can resell it some least. people collect milk bottles you know like it, mm. it's just yeah maybe it is the aesthetic maybe it's the artwork yeah. maybe it's i don't know mm. i don't know um, and we're not judging anyone for collecting it's just the consumerist yeah driven side of it yeah like it's important to note that the collecting does not equal collecting right. because there's there's different kinds of attitudes when you collect to get like you know a, a hit of serotonin when a parcel arrives that's that's, that's not collecting then, that's really, not collecting it? yeah that's, that's not some, make, that's not curating a collection yeah that's, that's just something else buying things yeah that's just <laughs> buying things and i think that's that's then like that's a problem, problem and yeah. i think a lot of people listening including myself are probably going to recognize a little bit of that in themselves I, again not out there to judge anyone just saying there are some problematic points in our hobby and I it's mean, important to recognize i had a problem with pogs like I had a real problem with pogs. Did you really? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I, 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 we, we weren't even allowed to play it at school because mm. I remember um, one of the teachers saying, "If I see one more pog in the playground, I will put them all in a big bonfire and we'll have the bonfire on the field." Right. So, so we weren't even allowed to play pogs, but I still desperately wanted them because there was this shiny one and there was, the, you know, the Tazos. I ate so many crisps because I wanted to collect all the Tazos, right? Is, is, sorry, like, is a Tazo a different brand of a pog or is it pogs, but like a subset of them? It's, no, it's not a different brand of pog. No, it was a specific type of, of like, well, a pog was a, a brand name right, anyway, okay, right, yeah, which is yeah. specifically made of cardboard. Tazos were made of plastic and they had uh, they had uh, Warner Brothers characters on them, like Taz, right. uh, you know, and, and that kind of thing, right? And they came in the crisps and they had, I don't know why, but they had little notches cut out the side of them so you could sort of stack them together and stuff. I don't know what the game of that was. That wasn't explained. You but weren't even playing the game, you I were just collecting. I, no, I was just collecting. And I had an album, you know, I yeah. guess it's like a panini sticker album yeah, you're yeah, not yeah, you're yeah. collecting the stickers to make it look nice and yeah. i was just collecting all the tazos and the pogs were a brief <laughs> brief flash back home like the briefest of flashes i remember them but like they came and went right yeah. nobody got into them we really got into yo-yos at oh. one point in lithuania there was a coke oh, coke did a Coke did a like a promotion where like if you know like the ball cap lottery right? Can I like, just say there are other brands available? This is not an advertisement for either Walkers or Coca Cola. <laughs> <laughs> so do, do, do you know the ball cap lottery I where do. you look behind yes, the ball cap and you yes. might win something or not? So they did that with yo-yos, and they were like, um, you could win a Fanta or a Sprite or a Coke yo-yo. But there were also like upgraded versions of each. And those were like the pro Ooh. yo-yos. And they were like, they were so much better. They were like, they're just easier to yo-yo with, right? <laughs> and and they were like, um, you know, see-through plastic, yeah. right? Uh, and it was, everyone was just crazy about them. Everyone was learning yo-yo tricks. Everyone in school had Coke yo-yos or Fanta <laughs> yo-yos. And everyone was like, look, I finally learned like walk the dog or whatever it wow. is, you know. So everyone was obsessed with that. And Can also, you still do yo-yo tricks? No, not really. Uh, but but I, I bought a yo-yo at Essenspiel. Uh, where like I just briefly stopped by to say hello to Rodney and Rodney was ab admiring the stand with wooden yo-yos and we each bought one Rodney if you're listening and you still have your yo-yo let me know because I still have mine 
Um, I'll send you a picture even with my OYO if you like. I'm talking of something from childhood and recent this walk, you reminded me of something. So uh, when I was like thinking about um, East Germany and stuff like that and what I remembered being taught from my childhood, I remembered one thing. Mm. There was a book, a kid's book. Mm -hmm. Like, and it was the sort of a... Kind of like a Tom Sawyerish type character, but more modern, right? Ugh. No, no, not in that. <laughs> okay. no, although maybe in that way. Again, I don't know. I was a kid, and uh-huh. this was a Soviet book, right? Mm-hmm. So who knows what was in it, right? But I remember it was a kids' book, and the only thing I remember about it was that it was set in East Germany, oh. which is how I learned that East Germany was part of the Soviet oh. Union, right? Uh, and so, and it was this. Um, the the character was like a kid in school. He got bullied. Uh, he wore this flat cap or uh-huh. something like that. I remember that about <laughs> him, and and also there was this specific bit about him thinking like, you know, oh, I really want to make spaghetti and tomato sauce, right? But then he tried to go to the market and he tried to buy tomatoes, and he was laughed at because, like, you can't buy tomatoes because it's like not the season for tomatoes, right? right? And I remember thinking they must not have it very well in East Germany because because you can buy tomatoes <laughs> all year round, right? I mean, like, well, not in Britain right at the moment, no, n- no, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> history repeats itself Uh, right Uh, and the reason i'm saying all Mm. of this if you're from east germany and you read that book i tried to find it online i can't find it please write into elaine at no point included and let me know what that book is because i can't find it was it did you say it was like a children's yeah it was like a children's book about you know a kid from school he has Uh friends he gets into scrapes you know but again that scene about he was trying to buy the pasta he made was a complete disaster by the way (laughs) right i remember that and i remember that he had no tomatoes yeah well no he had to buy tin tomatoes and then he couldn't follow the recipe and it all went wrong oh no right so if you if you have read this, please write in and let me know what this is. Oh, oh gosh. Uh, there's some good things from, from your childhood, Efka. Thank you. Uh, most of them made by Soyuz Malt Film, but, um, <laughs> but uh, that one obviously wasn't made into a cartoon. No, I don't think so. No. We're talking more about Paul's interview in the bonus episode, as well as Efka's top 10 solo games, available for all backing levels on patreon.com forward slash no pun included. Finally, let's talk about someone who has both a board game and a dinosaur named after them. Carnegie comes from publisher Quined Games by designer Xavier Georges and artist Ian O'Toole. We're a little late on this and it's a shame. I tried to write a review for Carnegie a couple of times. It never materialized into a video. Mm. It was a strong contender for Game of the Year for you last uh-huh. year and it was sort of hovering close to there for me as well. Not not quite, but, but I did enjoy it. It was certainly the Euro game of 2022 that I liked the most. And I respect so much about Carnegie. And actually, before anything else, I'm going to give a shout out... The game or the person? <laughs> I'm going to give a shout out to uh, the Friendly Ties podcast, who did an absolutely excellent episode on Carnegie. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to that. And they go into the sort of, uh, you know, higher level play of Carnegie and and what that experience is like, rather than talking like, you know, crunchy tactics, although they do do that. It's more like 
the the experiences the game engenders in that state when you're familiar with it and what it can do. And I'll sort of allude to that a little bit as we go on. But basically, in some ways, it's your bog standard Euro game. You know, you you build tr- trains, you build offices in your building, you send workers to the offices, the workers then build the tracks or the trains or whatever, you connect things on a map, you get victory points, you win. That's that Carnegie in a nutshell. And and yes, we will speak Slight about... Slight simplification. It's quite involved, right? Uh, but I, I'm sort of glossing over all of that because that's not what's interesting about Carnegie. The interesting part, and like I'm not saying that that's designed poorly or whatever. It's actually des- all of that is designed quite well, apart from one element, I think. Um, but but the interesting part is, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's got an innovative action selection mechanism, and, and I like it. I I like this. Take that inno- off the bingo, right? Yeah, I like this innovative action selection mechanism because. Because you don't just get to do a thing, right? So there's a number of actions you can do. There's four different actions. So there's uh, HR, research and development, you know, two other actions whose names <laughs> are so nondescript I can't remember. Management. I can't remember. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah something like that, right? But it basically alludes to the offices that you have built up in your office building, factory, factory something it has like to that. Be a factory. It looks so drab, right? He was well known for his factories, was Carnegie. Yeah. So so you have various offices and they relate to various these four departments, which are the four actions of the game. And and so you select one of these and everybody gets to do that action. And and this is the key trick here, right? Because in Carnegie, most of the time, you can do whatever you want to do. Like, if you really need to get an action done and it's your turn, then you you can just select that action. And, and there are consequences, but mostly you can just do it. But the trick is, is that, let's say you're playing a four-player game. The other three turns, you don't get to select what that <laughs> action is. Other people do. And everyone does their full actions on everyone's turn. And this creates a really sort of mean ecosystem of like constantly watching what the other players are doing, what their board state is, how they've positioned their, you know, workers, how they positioned their like, you know, the cities that they've built up on the map and the trains that they connected to them. It's it's not trains because you build cities as long as the cities like connect via a track, an invisible track, you know, because there's like pre-printed on the board tracks, right? You've connected them, right? But there's so much like investment into what other people are doing and understanding what other people want to do, right? That the game really becomes alive then. And that's the sort of Euro game that I respect. Um, Not only one that makes me care about what other people are doing. And I like the opposite of that as well, right? I'm not judging, but it really does make me care about what other people are doing. But it's also easy to understand what Mm. other people are aiming for. It's not that convoluted that you go, like, your board is arcane, you have 5,000 resources, and I can't figure out what you want to do. No, you know exactly what they're doing and what their goals are. <laughs> yeah, right? And and that's that's what's really good about, about this game, I feel like. It really, really wants you to consider what everyone is trying to achieve 
and sort of move them along. What helps with this is this mechanism that like, so you have your offices that you can build. And again, there's a smorgasbord of offices and they each provide you with like various upgraded versions of the actions that you can do. And sometimes you're the only person who can have that office because you buy it, it's not available for anyone else, right? Um, and you put it on your board and you send the workers there and then they do things. But also some actions require you to send those workers often to the various regions of America onto the map, the central board that is shared by everyone. And then when you do an action, you select to do the action, you will move this sort of block onto this space um, that will signify an area of of the board and then people will return things from there and then if you sent your workers there to do a good action and they were there and you've built up that area and they come back and you get so many bonuses right like it's really satisfying when things fire off in this game and you're able to like navigate not just this miasma of mechanisms that is so common to euro games but you've navigated what the other players are doing and what they're trying to achieve you played them do you right? know do you know what is not satisfying yes when you think oh i'm gonna do this action because this is gonna be really good for me and you haven't paid attention enough to the other players boards and so you do this action and it's all right for you but it's really good for someone else and they end up getting far more stuff from it than you have or maybe that's peculiar to me i'm gonna make a very obvious um analogy here i think because it's it's very much in the pop culture right now tomatoes no succession so people love succession it's a very popular show right now if you haven't watched it it's where um brian cox literally plays rupert murdoch right like it's it's like what if arrested development but we treat these characters like actual people and not comedy vignettes uh and they're as awful as you imagine them being right uh and it it literally feels like being one of the characters in succession you know like sometimes you're an idiot an utter buffoon and you are flabbergasted by how a person like that could be could have real power not even you know not let's not even mention unimaginative power (laughs) but right but sometimes you are this machiavellian mastermind of of like you know engineering these plots and reading these people and sort of analyzing everything and going (laughs) (laughs) just like carnegie himself just like carnegie himself and i guess that's where the theme comes in because the theme like you could you could you could see this as a sort of a criticism but the the rule book strangely makes it very overt that that's not and it's a thousand okay like a thousand people spoke about this i'm sort of almost mentioning this out of necessity mm. yes carnegie was an awful person yes the rule book glorifies him by saying hey he wasn't just an awful person he built all these nice libraries elaine you worked in libraries I how did. do you feel about carnegie um be honest i i i i, uh, I have mixed feelings about carnegie do you really yes. do you not just think he was I do. awful uh because uh, no uh well yes uh but well yeah see that's why i have mixed feelings oh come on it's billionaire philanthropy it's 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 yeah well so 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 the story that i know and I, and this might be wrong yeah. right? because i haven't looked into him that much i only know very much surface level stuff about him mm. is that he was a terrible horrible peop- 
person, people, yeah. person. Uh, lots of people suffered horribly and died in his factories. He did not care. He worked them and worked them and, until they died and didn't, and just then replaced them, which is a yeah. bit like most companies now. You know, if, if you, they will work you until you drop and then they'll just get someone else in, whatever. But uh, but there has been a lot of uh, he did he did then have some kind of revelation and went oh I should probably use my money that I have made and hoarded myself over all of this time I don't know if he oh but like this what he, people do now like Bill Gates and Elon Musk right this well, is not, it's literally no. their playbook right and here's here's my ultimate question if yes. you sort of oh but I see the good side right like to anyone who's listening I'm gonna I'm gonna ask this question yeah, go on. right if someone breaks into your house yeah. and steals stuff from your house yes right and then goes and sells all of that stuff yeah and then takes some of that money and yeah. donates it to charity do you still feel good about that person if they gave all of that money to charity then probably yes but he never gave all of that money uh, to charity. I, but the thing is i i just i'm a, a huge supporter of libraries and education free education in general and and, mm. and accessible information like I, I i hate the idea of information and education being behind paywalls right yeah um and so anything that that gives people resources to learn sure but isn't that the insidious part because like well you, yes right because you pick <laughs> yes. you pick something that no one can argue against and go look no, I, I, did, understand I did that, that one well, right it, it, you know it's like yeah like you were saying bill gates you know yeah uh, fighting diseases right mm. but but i, I don't I, I don't know i i i i need i would need to read more about Carnegie. Uh, uh, Sorry, this... I clearly put you in a little bit of an uncomfortable well, spot there. No, right? on, uh, no, I absolutely agree with you. Hideous mm. man uh, was torturous yeah. throughout his career, um, but but also libraries. Um. Yeah. Anyway, I think this brings us into uh, the mechanism that I hate mechanically yes. and thematically, which is donations. Right. Uh -huh. So one of the things that. In, in some ways, it works quite well. Uh, but, like, um, thematically, the rulebook basically says, well, Carnegie was bad, but he donated a lot of this wealth, and that's what the game is. Let's focus on the good parts. Let's see, not. See, I, that's um, what, I also don't like that about the game, because it gives you a very different picture of, of how he was actually like. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, and so you do donations in this game to score victory points, right? And the mechanism how you do donations is actually quite good, because it's... Um, you know, like you, you have these moments, sometimes your action will trigger, you know, people returning from a certain region. Sometimes it will trigger a donation sort of sub round, which means if you have enough money and they get progressively more and more and more and more expensive, you get to put a pip on like one out of like 25 or 25 space. Mm. This is a lot of spaces. Mm. And that pip will score you points the things you, that you've done in the game so if you built enough of certain kind of department yeah. you know you will get more points yeah. or whatever they're so bland i can't even remember what <laughs> they are um but and that's my problem with it it's it's really really the scoring criteria is for donations is so dull and and some of them you literally go why would anyone do this you know uh, i I'm not necessarily sure I'm on board with the food chain magnet, you know, design ethos of, or like the splotter spelling, you know, like where it's like, if there's no point in doing something in your game, if you, you know, if you can't lose on the first time, why is it there? I yes. feel like more of that yes. ethos should have been in Carnegie because, because the scoring conditions are dull as dishwater and very uninspiring. And 
I get that it's it's probably a minor quibble for some because the nature of play is is quite compelling. But also when you're striving for something that you literally don't care about, mm. you know, it it does put a do sort of dampener. Like you know, oh, you know, I already got like you know the scoring conditions that you know I am working towards the first couple, and then. I'm, I might as well spend this money on donations, you know, even though I won't get as many points because, like, the the, the only ones that are left are wishy-washy and not very good, but I might as well go for that. I don't know. It just feels lackluster, mm. right? I'm not saying that it's mechanically not sound or anything like that. I'm just saying it, it doesn't engender, like, a, a feeling of excitement, right? Mm. It, it, it's more like, ah, eh, okay, I guess, you know. And that's really aside from like how the rulebook treats Carnegie and how the designer probably sees Carnegie. I I don't want to speak for the person, but like the, how the game portrays Carnegie isn't particularly exciting. But the, but the the cutthroat nature of place certainly evokes. You know, the viciousness that you imagine mm. people in positions of power like I, that. I think I have a better analogy than mm. your someone comes into my house and steals stuff and then sells it and donates that to charity. I, if, if someone said, okay, we're going to open this library, mm. but three people have to die for you to do this, would you do it? No. Absolutely, I would not. So I, I, maybe that's a better answer of how I feel about him. As well, that turned dark very well, quickly. But, but yeah. like, imagine if that was in the game. Like, the, the rule book says, we're just going to celebrate all the good things he did. Okay, because you couldn't have. Imagine if in the game, right, there was, okay, you can take a double action with this meeple, with this worker, mm. except they're going to die at the end of the round or, or whatever because you've worked them too hard. No one would play that. Do you know, I honestly... I honestly said to myself when we were when I was preparing for this episode, just look, everyone's talked about Carnegie already. Just just well, gloss I over know, that I part. Know. Well, and then you we, can't. We, uh, you can't. You really, really can't. Um so anywho, conflicted conflicted feelings about the theming of the game for sure. Mostly very, very, very positive feelings about the game. Would you agree? Yeah, I I, I very much enjoyed this game. Uh, and, and you're right, like the bit that I liked about it, because in a lot of Euro games, you know, I know this is a bit trite, but you're kind of playing your own little game and you're not mm. paying attention that much to what other pe- uh, people are doing, right? Um, whereas this is very much that you have to have your eye on the ball uh and on what other players are doing at all times because like you said you know not only uh are you taking actions for yourself but they're going to be taking the same actions that you are taking and it might be better for them um so and and also they might be taking the thing they might be working towards the same like donations goals as you are right so are you going to achieve that should you like diversify and go off and do something else and you have to really balance um, every everything that you are doing, right? Each different action, because if you let one of those fall by the wayside a little bit, and then another player decides to do that action, suddenly you're almost missing a turn because there's nothing you can do with your mm. factories because they don't do anything, mm. right? Uh, because you're not the right position for them to do anything. So I, I really like that, um, that, that there is so much to think about all the time that like you're, there's never downtime in this game. You're, you're always thinking, what am I going to do next? You're planning several turns ahead, how to get different things, where you can go, what you can do. Um, and, and it was just, it was just a lot of fun. Yeah, um, I agree. Very engaging game. We didn't even mention the pullout things, you know, from the, from the 
Well, you Double kind, you kind of touched on Yeah, but like, bit. you know... Uh, the, you get the, things when you come back. Yeah, but like the physical aspect of... of oh, you I know, see. Yeah, yeah. Like oh, there's, double layer playable. Yeah, Ooh. yeah. But like there's an inside layer, uh, invisible uh-huh. layer, and you have these tabs and you pull them out and they reveal like little symbols and you get to put discs on them. It, like the production is... Very physical, yeah, isn't it? I, I really like the Inotool artwork. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's oh, not well, a yeah, surprise. Duh. We frequently are enjoyers of Inotool artwork. Uh, but but I especially like it in this game because uh, not only do the sort of muted colors help, you know, like and and the you know Ian has really good color sense, I think, um, because for me it is it's always, always like he's an artist. Well, no, it's not just that for me. I, f- I find his color sense very helpful to parsing games and mm. understanding games. Uh, when a lot of games have like just really loud primary colors, I I struggle to focus. Yes. And he's just very good at making colors palatable and understandable for me. So uh, once more praise to Ian O'Toole and his artwork. <laughs> That's all the games. If you have anything to say about any of them, don't forget to drop me an email, Elaine, E-L-A-I-N-E, at nopunincluded.com. Or if you have any general questions or comments. On the next episode, we'll be talking about Horseless Carriage, Ginkopolis and Rolling Heights and having an interview with Adrian Tchaikovsky. So if you have any words of wisdom or any questions about those, please do let us know. In the meantime, Efka, if they want more pun-free fun, where can they find it and what can they find on our bonus episode this week? On our bonus episode this week, we'll talk a little bit more about Aaron Trespass Odyssey, uh, just just our general experiences with the game and how it's going along. Uh, we'll also talk about my top 10 solo games that I enjoy playing by myself and with no one else. So many finger guns in that. People couldn't see, but I was well, pointing I was, them everywhere. I was describing it for yeah. everyone. And, and some sort of Efka torture device that Elaine has con- concocted that I don't know anything about. So if you're into that, patreon.com slash no pun included. If you become our backer, you can listen to the bonus episodes there, or you can just get a unique RSS link and then put that in your non-Spotify podcast device and just just listen to it whenever it comes out it'll come up on your podcast as a separate feed you'll get these episodes on that feed as well so you can just have one feed nicely organized it works it's nice if you're on spotify you can listen to us on patreon when you're back there's an interface there there's there's many ways to enjoy it's just nice bonus no pun included Bonus talk cardboard. And what is the game of the episode? Carnegie. That was the quickest I said. Uh, that was super quick, yeah. Yeah. You've almost said it before I even finished asking you the question. I mean, it's it's very obvious choice here. Like, it, the game is very good, right? And Well Riders was fine and Bersinda's Folk was flawed. So, easy pick. Thank you so much for listening. And with that, why don't we say... Goodbye, Elaine. That's it. It's it's it, we're doing it forever now because because Elaine literally said, I don't know how to sign off without that now that people brought that back. So goodbye, Elaine. Goodbye, Elaine. <laughs>